Uh, Wayne Fowler was not able to come today because Ruth is not well. Uh, she's been bedridden, I think, for two days, and I really want to encourage you to be praying for her. Uh, it's pretty serious. So please pray for the Fowler family. Uh, also, if you look in the bulletin, you're going to see that on the insert page, there's quite a few people that are going through a lot of stuff. Uh, this week, um, it, was, it was so very sad uh, to see the two young ladies up here, Chrissy and, and her sister, Rosie. Uh, they had tears. And they had tears because kind of like their cousin, uh, kind of an adopted cousin, died of SIDS. It was so very sad, Monday morning early. And yet, I think, I know I'm bringing tears to your eyes, but uh, there's some thanksgiving that God has pro- provided some money to be able to help the family that is dealing with it. The autopsy said the little one was a healthy little one. So sad, little MJ. I've, I've seen that little one come by, not to church, but on the church grounds. Uh, at this time, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here, This is where we need to be. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. Lord, this is supposed to be a safe place. A place where we can come, where tears can flow, heartaches can be mended. Where deceit can be uh, removed by the light shining. Where where passion for the lost can uh, can be fortified with training. So that the people of God might be equipped Lord, we've heard today that there were over 100 individuals here on Monday night. The parking lot had so many bikes on it. It It's fascinating. We didn't even have enough food to fill their stomachs. Lord, as I interacted with several of them from Turkey, it was making me think about the bombs that were blowing up in their airport. And yet, as I chatted with them and talked about uh, the religion that they had, the seven of them were talking about their nominalism with Muslim behavior. Lord, it's reminded me of the Christianity that has nominalism in our country. People claim to be Christians, but they don't know Christ. And likewise, many people in Turkey, they, especially the younger generation, they know what's supposed to happen, but they're moving further and further away from the radical stuff. Lord, it is, people need the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you have raised up many hands to do things that one hand couldn't do. The food to feed 94 is amazing. Lord, we thank you that there is opportunity upon opportunity to lift Jesus up. I do pray that we might look unto him who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured and he sacrificed and he did everything so that we might have everlasting life. Lord, we could not clean ourselves up with the soap that was was put in front of us, even if it's 100% pure like dove or whatever it is. We thank you that you can clean our hearts and you can wash us white as snow. Lord, I do want to lift up our congregation. There is a lot of pain and a lot of hurting. Lord, I pray that you will not only deal with the physical hurts and the pains, but also the physical ones and the relational ones. Lord, I thank you that there is no no issue, no problem that could ever arise that could separate us from your love. And Lord, because of that confidence, I believe that you can heal the other wounds with humility, with grace. Lord, I pray that you will do what only you can do, 
that you will bind up these broken hearts, that you will allow us to embrace. Lord, I've seen miracles take place on different levels. Even for Bobby, who is going back into the hospital, Bobby DeHaven, she is looking for relief from infections since she has spina bifida. Lord, we were thinking about miracles for for Ruth, that she would be able to get back on her feet even today and to be able to function again and be able to take on that responsibility of the great-grandkids. Lord, I pray for grace for the family that is, that is so sorrowful with the death of that little beautiful baby, little MJ. Lord, when we go down our list, each one of us have them. As we mentioned in Sunday school, several requests were given. Folks that are dealing with cancer, that are getting treatment, folks that are having to, uh, to plan for uh, special surgeries, folks that are dealing with, with diagnosis that just make you feel like, is life worth living? I pray that you will give us the helicopter view of faith, even today, that you'll lift us out of the pit of despair, that you will give us the joy of the Lord so that we might be able to join with the Apostle Paul and say, rejoice in the Lord always, and again to say, rejoice. Lord, when we pray for those in authority over us, those authority structures that you established from the home and from the church and from the state, Lord, I pray for moms and dads. I pray that you will... Give them the wisdom to navigate through these difficult waters of postmodern thinking. I pray for the church leaders. Oh, Lord, I pray that especially our session and diaconate would be strengthened. We thank you for those who are interested, even going through officer training now. We pray that you will fortify your church, provide it with the leadership that would lead us into the 2020 vision. Lord, what is going to take place until you return when that last trumpet sounds? But right now, I also want to lift up our government. Uh, Just this week, they had a marathon session where the legislators came together and were there hour after hour after hour, even into late in the morning, I think upwards to 5 a.m. Lord, I thank you that there was not some of the legislation passed that I believe would have been uh, not good for the Christian community. Lord, I pray that there would be good legislation that does pass, that would lift us all up, that would be a blessing to all of our community, especially coastal Sussex. Oh, Lord, I pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you're at John chapter 8, you're going to be seeing a story about Jesus. Most people don't focus quite on Jesus. They focus a little bit more on the other characters of that story. And there are three different groups of characters. Uh, If you have your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1137. And the title often is said, The Woman Caught in Adultery. I think today you're going to find that this is an interesting text for July 4th weekend. The title of the message is freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a, woman to him, uh, uh, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, uh, they said to him, Teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. O Lord, I pray that you will take this text. I pray that you will take this uh, story, this narrative, this real part of history... And I pray that you will do something with it in us. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. With postmodern patriotism waning in the face of globalism, people are not looking at their countries with the same, uh, with the same kind of flavor and, as, uh, and passion as they've done in the past. There may be some changing of the tide, as we saw with the Brexit vote, but right now we're not exactly sure. But there is a globalism. If you step into the room next door to us, you'll see flags from almost 18 different countries representing the people who have been, on this, been in this church even in the last few weeks. The world has gotten smaller. And sometimes the focus on our particular nation uh, brings division instead of unity. We were talking about this at General Assembly as well. But within this reducing of patriotism, there also is a changing of the concept of freedom. There's a redefining taking place. Freedom is now applied differently. I have a list. Freedom now is you want to be free from bullying. You want to be free from discrimination. You want to be free from being a loser. You want to be free from failing. And you even want to be free from responsibilities. You see, a lot of the things that are going on in our culture are seeking to make people feel better so they won't have to feel these things. Now, is that good or is it bad? The irony is many of these things are good, but just like with food, if you eat too much of it, what happens? It's bad. You see, God intended us to be free. But when you can see the shift, the shift comes away, I, I think of, uh, of the the William Wallace character in Braveheart. You know, if you've seen that movie, and when you understand he's just about ready to die when they're stretching him out, and he says, freedom! You know, it makes the hair on top of my head stand up. And, and when, he's, when he's about to die, he's dying for a cause so that his fellow countrymen in Scotland might be able to do what? To be able to take care of their own castle, which for some of them was simply a shack that they might be able to keep most of their income instead of having it being socialized. And also for them to be able to worship God, not just the way the state tells them to. You see, those simple freedoms, he tried to give that to them. But I want to tell you, when Jesus died, he actually did. 
When Jesus died, he secured a freedom for us, a freedom that is not conditioned upon the next ruler or the next person elected. He provided for us the freedom from condemnation because he took our sin at the cross. He paid it all. Now, when you get that understanding of freedom, we see that in the story in the text today. Back in July 4th, 12 score years ago, when our nation was being conceived in liberty, a Continental Congress got together and they were trying to figure out what they could do to try to stem the tide, to not go in that certain direction. There was contention and there was fighting and a petition was written. They call it a declaration. They spent some time trying to make it beautiful. They wanted to be free from the tyranny that was creeping up. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was their goal. Under God, as our, as our Pledge of Allegiance says, with life and liberty to all who believe. Or as I drove to General Assembly, we went down on I-95 past uh, Richmond. And as we drove by, I pointed out to the kids in the car, I pointed out and said, that's just up the hill there is the church where Patrick Henry uh, where they were hiding from the British and they moved some of the, the Virginia representation into a church building, a church. And it's there where he says, is life so sweet and peace so dear as to be purchased by the, by the chains of slavery? And he says, forbid it. And then he says, but as for me and my house, uh, he, he almost sounds like he's quoting like Joshua, but he says, give me liberty or I'd rather die. I want to be a free man. Freedom. When, when, uh, when Patrick Henry said those words, he knew that war was already upon them, that the um, forces were already being gathered, the ships were coming over from Europe, and the troops were already in. You can hear his, his case. He makes a compelling case. But what he knows is that if you want freedom, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost. And many of them gave their lives, their fortunes. Do we take freedom for granted? I find that we do. The times that I often have noticed my freedom is when I go traveling to another country, especially through some of the missionary trips. And when you go over there, you realize what we have because they don't have it. They don't even have the the luxuries, but they don't have the opportunities. In In our story of John chapter 8, we find this lady. She goes home a free person. She goes home with a spring in her step. She goes home with a song on her lips. She is free. It's pretty exciting. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but when you see freedom, uh, you usually think, well, she's been with Jesus. That would work. But as you read our text today, guess what happened? There were quite a few people who went home and they didn't have this whistle on their lips. They weren't saying rejoicing in the Lord. They were frustrated. Just because you've been with Jesus doesn't mean that you have that freedom from condemnation. Now, I'm hoping to explain it to you in our text today as we unfold it. Uh, I want you to see some freedoms that are in this text, things that you may not have noticed before. First, I'm going to talk about the freedoms that people have because they're people. Secondly, I want to be able to talk about the freedoms that Jesus demonstrated that most people don't. And thirdly, I want to tell you the freedoms that Jesus secured because he could. 
So let's look. First, the freedoms that other people have because they're people. These freedoms, I want to be able to show you the concept of this freedom that humans have. Then I want to show you the cast that demonstrates it. And thirdly, I want to give you the illustrations of their choices. So as we look quickly, the concept is, is that we are free agents. You know, even though we believe in predestination and the sovereignty of God in this church, we also believe in the free will of man and woman. Are they contradictory? No, we believe that you have free will. In the original state, I wanted to be able to tell you that in Adam and Eve, where we were all, we all have their DNA, you trace it back. In Adam and Eve, we were created in God's image. And one of the things that makes us a part of God's image is that we have a will. We have the ability to choose. Now, I have a, we have a smart dog at our house, little Sandy. But little Sandy, when she messes up, she knows. You can watch it with the family. She kind of cowers and she knows that she's made a mess. Now, dogs are smart. Cats are smart. Whatever pet you have is really smart. Nothing against any pets. In fact, our bird is really smart because she sings, this is the day that the Lord has made. And she whistles to everybody that comes by. (laughs) Now, but people are totally different from pets. We are created in God's image and we have a will to choose. You can train pets to be able to respond to stimuli. They may learn and be the behaviors, but they're not people. They don't have a soul that, that will never die. I don't know what they have. I'm just going on record. But people have a soul that God breathed into them when Adam became a living soul. And we have that same soul. And that's part of the reason we're valued. But we have a free will. It is the essence of being created in God's image. We have a freedom of choice that we often uh, take advantage of. But our freedom of choice was tainted. It was fenced. It was reduced. Our capacity for freedom shrunk and shrunk. Because it used to be that in the Garden of Eden, we had the ability to do everything. And one of the things that our forefathers chose to have, they wanted to have more than what God gave them. They wanted to know what, if, what evil was. They wanted to know, as the Bible says, right and wrong. Now, when we were created perfectly, without sin, without a sin nature, we were holy and happy until we wanted to be more like God, which actually sounds like a good thing, but they wanted to have something that God said we shouldn't have that's not good for us. And you know how they found out about good and evil? By experiencing evil. They ate the forbidden fruit and all mankind sinned and fell with Adam and Eve in that first transgression. And ever since then, our free will has been in bondage. We are no longer free. Martin Luther said it well. He said, the bondage of the will. Because now we only do the things that are right in our own eyes. And this has been happening ever since then. We always do what's right in our own eyes. It's codified in in the book of Joshua where they repeat it over and over and over. But if you just look in the mirror, you'll be able to see you and I do the same thing. We do what's right in our own eyes. When When you reflect upon this, this sin nature has tainted us. And no longer do we get to do all God's perfect will. We end up doing what we want to do when we want to do it. Our freedom has been reduced. Now, if you look at the cast of characters in the story, we are given an accuser, and we're given the accused and the accusers. Uh, In a sense, the accused is this lady, and the accusers is this group of men. 
These men, what would you describe them if you had adjectives to describe the scribes and the Pharisees? They were the professionals. They were the guys who were pretty smart. You know, they probably had the education. They probably had degrees on their walls if they had offices. This girl, we probably think she's probably about 20, 25 years old. She's probably a pretty girl. The accused and the accusers. They are meeting on the mount called Olives. And as I was there in January with a group of us, uh, we can all, the memories all come back to us. And when we're on the Mount of Olives, you can see the city of Jerusalem. And you'd know that the Temple Mount was just there through the Kidron Valley. It's all right in front of you. And they come to listen to the teacher. But really, they didn't come to listen. They came to trap. And when you look at the free will of these people, uh, I mean, the, these were people like us. I don't know which ones you are more quick to identify with. Sometimes I feel like I'm like the first and sometimes I feel like the second. And you may feel exactly that. You may feel like the accused. Like people are pointing at you and showing your sins and your faults. That you are guilty. You may actually feel like you're the other folks who think that you can see what's going on and you need to protect yourself. Now, I want to explain it to you in their choices. Allow me to show what they actually did in the text. Uh, This girl, she chose what was good for her according to her own understanding. The Bible says that she was engaged in some sexual activity outside of marriage. The Bible calls that adultery. By the way, it's still wrong even in the 21st century. Why is it wrong? I'm waiting for you to say because the Supreme Court said it was wrong. No, no, no. The only reason you can say it wrong is because God said in in Exodus chapter 20, I think verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Has he erased it? If he hasn't erased it, then it's still wrong because God's still sitting on the throne. That's the way it works. Regardless of what everybody else is doing, you're not free to do it if you know God. The interesting thing is, Her choice to have sex outside of marriage, it was to fulfill her own lust. And it might have even been to fulfill her own pocketbook. Maybe she needed a little extra money. We don't know her motives in all of this, but we know that she did it and she did it willfully. And we know that it happened. She appears to have been loose with her moral conduct uh, because people actually saw her do it. She didn't get away with it very well, did she? She didn't hide her sin like you might, might have expected Now, the other group of people, what did they do? The accusers. Now, this group of people was kind of an interesting group. Um, They were quite different than the lady. Uh, Their will was not to fulfill their, their pleasures. It wasn't that. They were more trying to fulfill their lust for power. They wanted to do something. Uh, Yes, they wanted to have power over the sinner, but I think they wanted to have power over the Savior. Because if you look at the story, they sought out Jesus on the Mount of Olives because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to bring him down because they didn't like his message. And they certainly didn't like the fact that people were fascinated with him. Who is this Jesus? Their choice was to follow the lady. Their choice was to punish the lady. They ended up following wherever she was, wherever she was having fun with that person. They had to see her. And why do I know this? Because in the Old Testament law, which they mentioned, the only way you could bring stoning upon a person was not if somebody says, I I saw them come out of the same house. I saw them come out of the same room. That doesn't, that's not the threshold. 
In order to bring a stoning on the Old Testament uh, for people with adultery, you had to see them like you see on TV in a pornography thing. You have to see them in the act. Sorry to bring up that reality. But they obviously, these guys had followed them and they caught them. And they knew that she was guilty because they witnessed it. Now, this is the plight of their choices. When they came to Jesus, they came, they wanted to police Jesus' activity, and they wanted to punish Jesus' words. They wanted him to be reduced in the eyes of the people so that they wouldn't feel like he was getting better than them. People will often use their liberty to achieve the things that they want. If you remember, I've mentioned this quite a few times. There's four poles in our hearts, and I don't know which one pulls at yours the most. It is when you have power over people. That's one. The other is when you want popularity with people. Those are both outgoing ones. The two in, in, in the thoughtful or the introspective ones are when you want control over your circumstances or you want just to be comfortable. Leave me alone from all the troubles. Those four poles are pulling at our hearts all the time. And whatever your personality is, you're probably drawn to one of those quadrants. But people tend to do this. Now, I want you to see, people were free to do the sin. They were free to do the policing. They were free to bring the judgment. They were free to do all those things because they have human freedom. Now, I want to show you Jesus' liberty, his freedoms. There are several of them here. He was free to be humble. He was free to be meek. He was free to be great. You see, when you look at Jesus, it's something you may not have seen in this particular story because the focus is more on the sin of this girl and how they deal with it. I want you to look at Jesus. I wish we would see Jesus at every meeting. I wish we would see Jesus in every text. Let's see Jesus. When you look here, you're going to see that he has freedom to do what most other people couldn't do. He had freedom to be compassionate and to be moral at the same time. He did not just give up and say, oh, everybody is free to do whatever they want to do, which would get rid of morality. And he just didn't say, oh, we're just going to love everybody indiscriminately. There is, there is punishment that he brings to bear. He says, if you're going to, have moral, to be moral and trample on people, then you're not going to be compassionate, or, or you're going to be compassionate and trample on the morality. He says, but Jesus was free to bring them both together, law and gospel. He was also free to be humble, which means he brings the two concepts together of gentleness and brave, braveness. How could Jesus do this? He was so gentle that when you look at this guy who is a, who is a manly man who can handle everything there, he's talking to this particular lady and he doesn't talk down to her. He doesn't condescend. He doesn't make her feel awkward. When everybody else is feeling, uh, well, let's put it this way. If you're there at the event you got all these guys gathered around and you got one lady. That lady is put in the middle of the group by the big group of people with all their degrees. How do you think she feels? She didn't feel safe. What a terrible place to be. She probably had her hands bound. I don't know if they beat on her or not, but they had to walk her over to, because they obviously didn't have a car or a, a police car or anything to get her over there. She had to be pulled to get there. There she is in front of Jesus to be the, the one that is mocked, to be the one that's just about ready to breathe her last breath. Because from the Mount of Olives, you can see pretty close to where Stephen was stoned because the Stephen Gate is right there overlooking the Mount of Olives. All of these things are there in your mind. And when you're looking at, at the state of affairs, you can see that this 
is difficult. How could Jesus be so gentle to her? How can he look at her with dignity? She's guilty. They are scorning her. They are making her to stand in front of everybody. They are giving her the greatest disdain that they could have imagined. They are bullying her around. They're doing all the things that we wish she had freedom from. Jesus never looked down. He never spoke with haughtiness. He didn't condescend. He didn't jeer. He didn't mock. He was not filled with scorn. You're not dealing with the average guy when you're looking at Jesus. Wow, would we be like Jesus? Jesus was also... I told you that he's humble um, because he has gentleness, but he also has braveness. You see, people were coming to him. He was the one that was actually under attack. I don't know if you caught that. It really wasn't about the girl. It was about him. That these guys came and they wanted to take down Jesus. And as they came with this trick, they tried to bring the Bible and they tried to use the Bible as a kind of like a judo method on him to bring him down. And Jesus, in the midst of this, he's kind to the lady But he's brave. He doesn't cower. He doesn't capitulate. He doesn't speak up with nasty words. He doesn't say, I know what you're up to. What did he do? Did you see it in the text? Or did you miss it? He sat down or stooped down and he started to write in the sand. I don't know about you, but if if this accusation came... If you were one of the guys bringing the accusation, what do you think would happen if Jesus just sat down and did that? Hey, Jesus, get up. Aren't you going to answer us? I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you look at the dynamics of this, and Jesus just does this. He is so calm, so poised, because he has freedom. He's not worried, he's not frustrated, he's at peace. This is the same guy that says, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you. He is demonstrating rest when this whole situation where he is coming under fire. It's so fascinating when you see that Jesus finally looks up. And what does he do when he looks up? If you have your text there, they come to him. They they came to test him, verse 6, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And finally, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus was brave. He was fearless. He was calm. He was, as the Bible elsewhere uses the word, meek. Meek is like a, um, I always use the illustration of a horse. If you have a great big horse with all of its power, it's useless unless it's harnessed. And when you put the bit in the horse's mouth and you have the reins, you're able to harness that horsepower for your purposes. Jesus harnessed his own strength. Because as I told you, he was free to be humble. He was free to be gentle and brave. He is also free to be meek and he's free to be great. Because Jesus knows who he is. He, doesn't, he knows his greatness and yet doesn't act that way. A lot of us would think either to, to have to feel inferior or to act kind and sweet or else you would feel your oats and feel pretty good about yourself so you tend to be haughty. But Jesus keeps these things juxtaposed. He knows exactly who he is, and he's kind, and yet he's bold. To see Jesus there on the hillside, the one who alone is free, 
You have the accuser and the accused, and they're both in bondage. Their wills are already limited, but Jesus is free to do all of God's holy will. The freedoms that he provides are so important for us because he sets the example, because he shows us how we ought to be. Now, I want you to look at what he gives us. He gives us a freedom from condemnation. He gives us a freedom from bondage, and he gives us a freedom to go in peace. Now, let me explain those for you briefly. Freedom from condemnation. This is really fascinating because when you look at the text and you see uh, Jesus looks at the woman and she says, who has condemned you? Verse 10. Who has condemned you? She says, apparently nobody. Wow. She's looking at Jesus and she knows he's a rabbi and he's still there. Why doesn't she think he's going to condemn her? I mean, she's guilty. They watched her. It's so fascinating to me to to be able to digest this, that she says, no one, Lord. So then Jesus chimes in and he says, I give you freedom from condemnation too. Now, when you look at the order of this, it's really fascinating. Instead of dealing with sanctification first, what does he deal with first? He deals with forgiveness. He doesn't expect her to fix everything first. He says, I forgive you. He says, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to hold justice over your head because I know I'm going to take care of the justice for you. We know that from the rest of the story. He addresses sanctification matters later. The first thing was forgiveness. The second thing you'll notice about this is the nature of the salvation activity. Forgiveness first, and then comes the performance. Because then the second part of this is go and do what? And that's what happens for us. When we're free from condemnation, we're free to go and sin no more. I told you about this. There's one other thing in the midst of this is the freedom from bondage. The fascinating thing that gets me on this is that there was bondages that they all had. You remember they were free as a human being in the will of God to be able to do what they wanted to do. But their freedom actually led them to a bondage. And each time they gave themselves over to a sin, they became more enslaved to those sins. And so when you look at the, the, there was a sin of guilt. I mean, there was the bondage of guilt, the bondage of fear, the bondage of performing and the bondage of superiority. When you look at these people, they thought they were free. They thought they were free agents. And yet they were trapped by guilt. She could not escape it. She was guilty. And so are each one of us. When you start looking at your sin, like I'm looking at mine, we're guilty. Guilty. There is none righteous, certainly not me. Are you? Secondly, the bondage of fear. Oh, no. Oh, no, they're going to find me out. Oh, no, they're going to bring justice on me. Oh, no, you can just see the gal. We don't know anything she said. I think the guilt silenced her. I think she caved in. I think she wilted like a flower. She was, she was done. She was burnt toast. The bondage of fear. I'm never going to get out of this. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. 
You see, when you go through your moments of those, it's scary, but Jesus can deliver you from those bondages. The other one about the other two groups, they had a fear of performing. They were on the treadmill of righteousness. They were trying to keep up. They were saying it's running, 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 and they're getting tired. And it just keeps, the treadmill keeps going. And they fall back further and further and further until they fall off. It's a bad analogy because they can never get on it because there's none righteous, no, not one. But they think they're doing a pretty good job. Their righteousness is as filthy rags, but they think it's pretty cool rags. When you look at them, they are trying so hard to stay above reproach, to do the right thing, to be able to purge this world of bad people. They're on that treadmill. They're in bondage to performing. And the other is the bondage of superiority. They want to remove anything that would challenge them. They wanted to trap this Jesus. They wanted to dismantle his ministry. They said, he has a Messiah complex. Bring him down. We don't want this guy because he doesn't fit into our team. And when you realize that's the way of the world, they don't trust Christ. They want him to fail. They want him to be humiliated, to be despised and rejected of men. Oh, I'm sorry. I switched right into Isaiah 53. Jesus was despised, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we would hide our eyes from him. We did not esteem him, for he was smitten of God and afflicted. That's what they ended up doing to Jesus. But I wanted to finish with these couple applications. We have a freedom also to go. Because when all was said and done and everybody left Jesus, who left first? It was the people who were on the treadmill of righteousness. They left first. Because whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, I think I could speculate for you this. (laughs) How many people does it take to do adultery? How many people are standing up there to be stoned? I think Jesus might have put a man and a woman up there. And he said, why your bias? Why are you going after the woman and not the man? You're hypocrites. You're phonies. You're not here for righteousness. You're here for the wrong motives. And when he saw these things to people, from the oldest to youngest, they walked away. They're like, they see it. But they didn't get deliverance from the condemnation. They went away with more condemnation. Self-condemnation. It's pitiful. But the girl, she leaves And Jesus says, I'm not only freeing you from your condemnation, I'm freeing from your bondage to have to keep sinning like that. Don't do any more adultery. If you're going to use your body, do it for the right things. And so if you look at this, she has a new page of her life. A new chapter has begun. Everything is new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and following. You're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything becomes fresh. I want to encourage you guys to know that this freedom to go is beautiful. So a couple of the applications that they said, a few tests that I was looking through. Do we have that freedom that Jesus has? Do we have freedom when we're, when we're do we have that humility and meekness? Do we understand our greatness in Christ? Yeah. He says, if criticism comes your way, are you indifferent or are you devastated by it? He says, when... When you respond to advice, are you totally inflexible or absolutely flexible? He says, if you're both, either of those, you're wrong. He says, lastly, if you look at your response to somebody saying thank you to you, 
When somebody wants to give you an honor, if you can't stand it, if you can't bear it, you don't want a compliment, then you don't want anybody to thank you, or you just get embarrassed and you avoid it like crazy. It's because you want it so badly. But on the other hand, if you have it, if you quit when people aren't nice to you, if they didn't notice you, or if they didn't give you thanks, and if they didn't give you strokes. You see, all of these things are understanding what happens when you get freedom from the bondages of this world. Tim Keller gave those illustrations. How convicting. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Jesus forgives. I'm so glad that the gospel is for us today in the 21st century. If you look at your text, you'll find in chapter 7, a lot of people struggled with who this Jesus was. Some felt he was demon-possessed. Some said he was just an ordinary man. Some said he was a prophet. Uh, 731 says that some people felt he was a messiah. Who do you say that he is? And if you look at this Jesus, when you see him as God the Son in John chapter 8, then I want you to go to him, all ye that weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the message of encouragement that comes We do not have to sign a petition uh, like they did 12 score years ago. 240 years have passed since those people pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They wanted to to have that nation conceived in liberty, to flourish, to be a great bastion of liberty. Lord, we pray that the liberty that we maintain and hang on to is the liberty that we have in Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty that Christ has brought us when he set us free, free from these bondages, free to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes up that we may see this peaceful Jesus and draw near to him. Amen. Would you please stand?